Hey, folks. This is Brian Loritz, host of Summit's Kainos podcast. We are a pastoral podcast where we're focusing on issues of ethnic unity within a large, predominantly white Southern church known as the Summit Church. I'm so excited today I get to hang out with my friend, Mike Kelsey, who I've known uh, for many years now. And uh, Mike Kelsey is doing great ministry as a, help me with the title, your A-lead pastor at McLean Bible. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So I don't need to put anything else on that. Just lead pastor there. You are primarily at one location. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. So I started uh, um, uh, one of our locations here in Montgomery County, Maryland, just north of D.C. uh, And then back in 2020, we kind of changed up our leadership structure a bit. So we have multiple lead pastors. And uh, so we kind of bounce around to different places. But my family is primarily based here in Maryland. We're the only location that we have uh, outside of Northern Virginia. So it feels very different on the other side of the Potomac River. And if you're listening from the D.C. area, you know what I mean. Uh, But uh, yeah, been blessed uh, to be here. And man, Been here at the church for 16 years now. And Ashley, my wife, has been here 18 years. And you were one of the first calls I made when when I when I got here. So it's been a long time. Wow, man. So you're originally from the DC area. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. My dad is a pastor in DC still, New Samaritan Baptist Church. And then uh, my mom's dad was also a pastor uh, in DC for I think 44 years or something like that. And my dad, his 30th pastoral anniversary is this October. All right. So you're listening to this podcast and maybe you're trying to figure out what ethnicity Mike Kelsey is. He just said that his dad's church is New Samaritan Baptist new, Church. New, new. That sounds like a black church to <laughs> that me, is, Mike. That's right. <laughs> not good is not good enough. It's, it's, it's new. Yeah. I love it, man. And so McLean is not a black church. It's no, no. Predominantly yeah. white. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of have any percentages as it relates to the ethnic breakdown, Mike? Yeah, it's changed over the years. It's very similar to Summit. So when when my wife and I came 16 years ago for me, 18 years ago for her, um, the church was overwhelmingly, I would say, white. Uh, but under the leadership of our former senior pastor, Lon Solomon, I mean, it was already starting to become more diverse. And so we've been around for a long time and been able to see that change and grow and struggle and really become a beautiful thing over the years. So I don't have the hard stats on all of our locations. I know for our location here in Montgomery County, um, now the last time we did this was back in, I think, 2018. We were 35% white, 34% Asian American, 23% black, 11% Latino. Um, and that that has even evened out even more, I would say, over the last uh, five years or so. And a similar trajectory at all of our locations. So our broadcast kind of original biggest location, which is out in Tyson's, um, I think now is about 60% white. Um, and I can't remember what the breakdown is outside of that, but I know there's about 117 nations represented like at our Tyson's location, for example. So every location is in a different area and that breakdown demographically is going to be, it'll vary from location to location, but all of them are increasingly diverse. And just an asterisk from Montgomery County, Maryland, for people who are not familiar, 
part of why our location out here is is much more diverse than our other locations is because four of the most diverse cities in America are in our county. Mm. So our county is just one of the most diverse places in the country. So that is reflected, thankfully, you know, in, in our congregation. Wow. I have so many questions. Uh, kind of one more from a demographic perspective about how many people come mm-hmm. uh, to, to McLean Bible. On a weekend, it's about somewhere between, I would say, seven to 8,000 across all of our locations. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. When you first get there, you would say predominantly white. What are we talking, 90% somewhere in there? I would say, I, I don't remember stats. I would say just eyeballing it and being on staff, um, we were probably 80% white. Okay. Um, maybe 75%. Uh, and that's when we got there. I mean, prior to that, I would say even more so. Um, yeah. So that's huge. I mean, the growth in diversity is huge over the years. Yeah. Uh, help us out here. What, I mean, did this just kind of happen? Were there some intentional things that you all did mm. uh, to kind of instigate that diversity? Mm. What, what, what did y'all do? Yeah, well, uh, well, first of all, I mean, I certainly can't take credit for it. I just came in on staff, my wife and I, with our young adult ministry from a whole different world. We can get into some of that, obviously, from Black church context, and we stepped into this new world. I think one of the reasons we started becoming more more diverse, two reasons. One, it's a, it's a bit of a megachurch phenomenon. So I think megachurches tend to be a little more diverse uh, than most churches just because of the what they offer, you know, right. the programs and the all that. Um, but I would also say our our uh, previous senior pastor, um, he was Jewish, a Jewish believer, and uh, he used to, you know, always joke with us younger guys and say his calling was to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. And and in other words, super sharp guy, but just felt like he wanted to preach in a way that was accessible to as many people as possible. And one of the things I didn't realize with that, and I learned over time talking to people, particularly people who speak English as a second language, was that was a huge draw because huh. uh, it just made it easier for them to understand the sermon. So that was kind of, I don't he didn't intentionally do that. That was just one of the things that made Sunday a bit more accessible. And then we started doing language, like real-time language translations during the services and um and and so some of it I don't know that it was intentional but it just organically happened um I would say uh back in around uh maybe 2015 16 17 we started doing some more intentional things and having conversations around uh staffing and being more diverse on uh, when it comes to staff uh, incorporating different cultural elements, whether that's recognizing Black History Month or, uh, or having different language elements in our services. And then in 2017, and you know, David, uh, uh, David Platt uh, succeeded our former senior pastor, became senior pastor before we kind of changed up our structure in 2020 to kind of a team lead pastor model. And, uh, and, and he pushed it even more um, and preaching about it from the pulpit uh, which I had done previously, but you know he did uh, in an even more comprehensive way. Um, so uh, over time, I think we've grown more and more intentional. 
it, but it started honestly with, I think us just trying to steward what God was already doing and then getting more intentional to push that further, uh, which is where some of the struggle began because I think the more intentional you become, the more challenges are associated with that. Right. Uh, but it's been it's been a, a an incredible journey, a difficult journey, but it's a really beautiful thing when you come to our church today, any of our locations. Um, it's a pretty powerful thing. I love it. So if I'm hearing you right, Mike, you're saying what's born a lot of fruit is preaching, not only talking about it, but even kind of the philosophy of preaching. So when Lon Solomon says... I, I want to really make things simple, keep the cookies on the bottom shelf, which, by the way, what does that mean? Was he more of a seeker-oriented kind of preacher? Like, what what does that mean? Yeah, he was. I mean, uh, he, he was a seeker-oriented preacher from the standpoint of very evangelistically focused and very kind of aware of in his preaching the, the unchurched. Uh, hmm. But I also think he would say at an, at an intellectual level, he—, he was intentionally preaching so that, you know, an eighth grader could understand or whatever, even though he had a PhD in like ancient Near Eastern, whatever. Hmm. Um, and so, which, which was fine. And, I, and I, it was great. But I didn't think until people started telling me that was so helpful, you know. Uh, and so now we got, you know, language translations in multiple languages, which, which make it super easy for people and all that. But But back then, this is before my time. You know, we didn't have all that. And so uh, just the simplicity of the preaching helped, you know, uh, with that a lot. What about musically? Did you all do anything different musically? So back in the day, I, I think it was, honestly, it was, it was tip, pretty typical kind of predominantly white megachurch, you know. Uh, now, we had different styles. This was kind of the old Willow Creek kind of model where you might have big band Worship on one Sunday and you got CCM on another Sunday, but it wasn't like ethnic or racial or culturally specific. Right. Um, so it was still, it was different genres that might appeal to different kinds of people, but it wasn't like uh, we were intentionally with the worship trying to reflect or attract a more ethnically diverse congregation. I think that, now that's, there was some of that. But I think that became very intentional in that like 2015 to 2017 uh, window of time. So how we hired worship leaders, the types of songs we were encouraging worship leaders to incorporate into our worship sets, the style you know, of singing and response and lingering after a song and not just switching the track to the next song. So that was in that window of time, and we've continued to try to grow in that over the years. It's good. Mike, you're, uh, you're one of the cutting-edge, up-and-coming African-American leaders in the church. You grew up in the black church. I just got to ask you, how in the world did you end up at McLean, uh, which is so—like, your folks have to look at you with, mm. with pride, but also— yeah. This is crazy. Like, do, yeah. you, do you feel that? How did you end up at at McLean? Man, I still feel that. So I, um, I, I, when I was in college, toward the end of my time in college, my dad was connected to an event that was here in D.C. that was run by the Luis Palau Association. So anybody listening to Luis Palau, I call him like the Latino Billy Graham. That's right. I mean, he was really mentored by Billy Graham. He, he, was, he was doing stuff all over the world. And uh, and so they were doing a big evangelistic festival in D.C. 
And uh, long story short, I end up getting hired by the Palau team uh, to join their evangelism, uh, evangelistic ministry coming out of college. And McLean Bible was one of our partner churches. Now, I grew up in the DMV, the DC area. I had never heard of McLean Bible Church before, even though at the time it was the largest church in the area. And uh, and I used to joke with our former senior pastor. He was all over the radio in this area, and I would tell him, "You run on the radio stations I was listening to, you know, when I was growing up." <laughs> right. And um, so I, so McLean was one of our partner churches. That's how I got connected to McLean. And then I moved with the Palau team um, to Florida and and other places. My wife graduated from college a year after me, and she had come with me to one Luis Palau event at McLean. And she was like, I wonder if that big church, you know, is hiring. And uh, and so she reached out and um, and long story short, she ended up on staff two years before I did. Uh, and, then, and so I joined staff. And so it was um, certainly a culture shock for both of us. I mean, my wife is African-Americans and econo- uh, African-American studies and economics major. You know, she grew up in Prince George's County and grew up in a black church. I grew up in a black church in the inner city. Um, but also, um, it 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 caused some challenges with my, me and my parents and our relationship because, and you'll understand this, Brian. For uh, but there's a lot of historical context with the quote unquote talented tenth, and so in in kind of Black American discourse, there's been this tension forever around. Uh, white people really uh, kind of swooping into the black community, not just right. even in the Christian space, but just in general, and pulling out people they saw as quote unquote particularly talented or gifted or articulate or whatever, and then taking them out of the black community and kind of using them really, uh, uh, you know, for all kinds of reasons. And so my parents at first, my dad was very supportive and felt like this was something God was calling me to do. Now, we all thought this was like a little internship, like right, go on, right, 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 learn right. from these white <laughs> Christians, and then come back. We all thought right. that's what was going to happen. Right. Uh, but my mom really struggled. And uh, and so we've had a lot of conversations over the years. And, and it's cool. They now see it's just something that none of us expected that God was doing. And um, and there's been a lot of lessons learned in that process, uh, but yeah, I just it not it's not something that I pursued. I had never, I had no context for any kind of church outside of the black church. I didn't even like CCM music. I I, I was like an acoustic guitar is, is for karaoke or something like that's what I don't know. That's uh, like that's at a coffee shop. You so know you know what weren't I'm listening to Toby Mac and no no uh, and um. And, and yeah, but I ended up here serving, thinking that would be temporary, and uh, and here I am, sixteen years later. No, I think you bring up a great point, Mike. It's it's something that you and I know because we've experienced it, we've seen it. But I think a lot of our white brothers and sisters don't really see it, and there's no way they can understand it, at least on a deeply visceral level, the way that we do. And that is, there is a cost. That is associated yeah. with this, right? As a minority, yeah. specifically, I would say even for African Americans, because the the Black Church is, it's more than just something we do. It's Absolutely. deeply ingrained in our culture. Some person said it this way: it's the only thing really that we've ever had mm. from mm. from day one. And mm-hmm. a part of that is because it's birthed out of a sense of rejection, right? The yeah. Black Church yeah. exists. 
because we were rejected and we hold on to this thing really, really mm-hmm. tightly. There's there's been a lot of costs associated with that, and I would imagine uh, you don't you don't have to comment on this, but you know the son of us of a senior pastor in the black church. I would imagine that your dad probably, at least at one time, nursed, if not still kind of visions of Mike's going to come back and take this thing over. Um, And I would imagine, Mike, that there have been times in which you've been at McLean going, ooh, let me me cross on back to the other side of (laughs) of the Jordan. (laughs) No, really, and I'm thankful because my dad, we've had conversations like that, and he never put that kind of pressure on me at all. Uh, And again, because part of this was we just thought, Go learn those systems and those whatever. Um, but there is a cost, man. Um, there's a cost to the churches that we leave. Uh, when we go and we get seminary trained and we get all this uh, diverse experience and that doesn't flow back into the community that raised us up. Um, and then there's a cost to us um, and, and so in, in a lot of different ways. So there definitely have been seasons where, and I still, man, I love my home church that I grew up in. I love the black church, which is not a monolith, but there certainly are certain things that characterize the black church. Right. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I still feel a bit like, uh, you know, when Paul wrestled, right, where he's like, man, I, I want to reach my kinsmen according to the flesh, but God called him to do this other thing. And uh, so sometimes I feel, you know, I feel that tension um, and I, I still have a burden. I think the black church is one of the most miraculous, beautiful and effective institutions in American history. Yes. Um, and uh it's rich, man. So I don't, I know some people feel like uh, leaving the black church and going to something else is a promotion. And I don't see it that way at all. Um, mm. I don't see it as a demotion either, but I just, I just, I think this is just something different that the Lord has called me to. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I still have a longing sometimes to be like, uh, man, uh, there's things that I miss in ways that I missed the opportunity to be shaped in and by the black church in my kind of adult ministry life and and things I've learned too that I would would love to be able to contribute you know but uh but I'm also thankful man for what God has done in my life and the opportunities and experiences he's given me That's good Mike so you you get over to McLean and like what what were some give me give me like two or three things that you as a follower of Jesus Christ, who is also an African American man, is like, ooh, th- this is different. Mm. Um, like, this is going to be an adjustment yeah. to kind of that predominantly white evangelical subculture that you now find yourself in. W- what What were those things that just took some getting used to? Yeah, I mean, some of it is typical things: um, the music, the style of worship. Um, you realize, for example, you know, when a song is in a black church, you never really know when a song is over because <laughs> we're going to reprise that joint. You know right. what I'm saying? Like right. whether it's spirit led or, right. or right. praise team led, like we're going to reprise it. <laughs> right. And um, and so there's little things like that. So little cues, right, that that uh, are different. Um, uh, and, and some of that is like the typical t- type stuff. Uh, I, I would say, and there, I mean, there's other things in that category. Some of the harder things, my wife uh, came on staff first. 
I don't remember the exact numbers uh, at the time. We were a staff of a few, couple hundred people. I think she was one, maybe one of three black people on staff or four. Um, and uh, that may have even been people of color. I'm not 100% sure. Let's just say she was like m- less than a minority, you know? Uh, her first Black History Month was a shocker to her. Because she had always been in a church that made a big deal about Black History Month. Right. And it wasn't even acknowledged. There was no, and I'm not even talking about from like the pulpit. I'm talking about just in conversation. It was like it didn't exist. And so her being an African-American studies major, um, and she got permission to do this. I, we were dating long distance at the time, and I was proud of her. Uh, she sent an email out to the whole staff, and she brought in books, you know, all kinds of academic books and popular level books, set up a little library in her cubicle, and uh, and said to the whole staff, you know, um, I'm celebrating Black History Month, <laughs> and if anybody wants to just do any reading on it and uh, and have any conversation, you know, feel free to stop by my cubicle and pick up a book. And so, um, so there were some things like that. Um, there were uh, there were things like social things. You know, I, I joke with people all the time. It took me a long time to realize, oh, Seinfeld is white people's Martin. And as soon as I as soon as I made that connection, I was like, okay, I get it now. I got it. And, and Friends uh, is their living friends, single. Is their living single. <laughs> and so um, you know, inside jokes, you know, uh things that are just um uh colloquial. You know, because right. of shows you watched or you grew up listening to Green Day or, you know, whatever. And uh, so some there was some of that. There were things that I remember one time in particular, somebody was uh, speaking on stage and said something in a way that was really insensitive. And they didn't mean it. Uh, that It was just ignorance. And I remember my wife, we were dating long distances before I was on staff. I remember her calling me. I was living in Florida. She had walked out of the auditorium weeping mm. um, because of just how uh, my, how alienating she felt and how hurt she felt. And that's, you know, uh, there were some different situations like that, you know. And thankfully, uh, we had leaders that were willing to listen to some of that. And um, we didn't really have the the overall like comprehensive strategy or even I would say commitment to all that was necessary at every point since we've been here. But we've always had leaders that were willing to at least listen to us. And um so yeah, there were all kinds of things, man, that that were uh it was just different. You know, everything from different to downright sinful. And I'll say offensive. I mean, this is a very sensitive one, but I remember 2008, Barack Obama gets elected. Right. Um, and uh, and I remember um, being home with my grandmother and aunts and uncles. I remember watching my grandmother weeping. Wow. I mean, weeping. And um, But it was a very different response right. in our church. And I remember we had one African-American intern, young guy. He was fresh out of college, very zealous. And this was inappropriate, but... <laughs> He heard some of the conversations that people were having about President Obama and the things they were saying. And it wasn't just like concerns about this or that. It was just ungodly, just ways they were talking about anybody. Uh, 
and he sent out an all staff email. Now he did not get permission, <laughs> and um, and and was just like you know, and he's a super godly young dude at this point, and but super zealous and just really rebuking the staff. So uh, he had to get you know pulled back. Like, hey, this is not the way to handle it. But um, that was hard, man. So th- there was everything from difficult uh, or different to difficult to painful and offensive. Um, but then there are also there's also been a lot of things that have been beautiful and mm-hmm. have stretched us and and changed us. Uh, so yeah, it's been a mixed bag. That's good, Mike. Well, listen, a few more questions for you. One, I'm really interested in, um, kind of that corridor of time in churches like ours, uh, beginning with the election of Donald Trump, 2016. And of course, we're not going to go in a partisan direction on either side. Mm-hmm. But that was a lot. Yeah. And I would imagine it was an extra amount of a lot in a place like the DMV. Yeah. Uh, where you have uh, the Capitol and the White House right there in your backyard. So we've got the the Trump election, that statistic of 81% of white evangelicals kind of voting for him, mm-hmm. the perception. And I even say all the time, you got to be careful with that statistic. A lot of my white evangelical friends who voted for Trump, it wasn't that they liked Trump. They just kind of chose the platform party over the person. So you had that going on. Uh, you had the madness of 2020 with the racial stuff. It kicks off with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George mm-hmm. Floyd, and some other stuff that's happening. Then you've got the pandemic. So we are ostracized and separated. We're Mm -hmm. isolated, not in community with each other during these very traumatic things that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Man, how did that impact you all at the church? And I know there's another issue that was happening. I don't even want to talk about that issue. But Mm -hmm. how did that impact you all, at least on a racial level, at the church, yeah. and how do you shepherd and lead through that as a black man in that context? Yeah, and it's still uh, affecting us. Um, I would say now, uh, predominantly in some in some good ways. Mm. Uh, but um, first of all, you mentioned Trump. Uh, I don't know if you know, remember, but he showed up to our church. Um, so it, he tell just us about that. Up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, that was oh god! <laughs> I try to forget the whole situation. It was so crazy. Uh, long story short, he. Um, uh, it was a Sunday that I think there was a call to pray for the president. And, uh, and so he has a golf course very close to kind of our original kind of big broadcast location. And so our, uh, David, uh, was preaching. I was at one of our other locations. Uh, it was one of the late services and long story short, David comes off stage from preaching. He's back. He's coming backstage to wait for a minute. And then he's going to go back out after a song to lead in the Lord's Supper. And there's Secret Service standing there waiting for him. And uh, and they're like, the President of the United States is on his way here and wants to know if you'll pray for him on stage. No heads up. So, no, he's coming. No, nothing. No heads up. No, no nothing. Uh, it's like, he's like seven minutes away. Will you pray for him? And so, um, so David, in his mind, is just processing, praying for the president, thinking through all the implications. And uh, so has him uh, come on, prays for him, does a phenomenal job in the way that he prays for him. Uh, but David was new, very new in D.C. at that time. And so afterwards, it was such a surprise to him and to, uh, well, some of us weren't surprised that there was pushback. But the level of pushback, because he got pushback immediately from people who were offended that we would bring President Trump on stage. And it wasn't about praying for the president. 
it was just about platforming such a polarizing pre- president at that time. Sure. Um, and so you have people that were offended by that and making that known. So he sends out an email just to explain to our congregation what happened. And then you had people on the other side who were like, how dare you apologize for praying for the president? So, man, we had a flood of media and all this stuff. It was it was crazy. So that, that was, uh, I think that was in 20, I can't remember what year that was, um, maybe 2017. Uh, but... That was crazy. Yeah, the our experience was similar to a lot of churches with politics and race, um, where you have this groundswell of protest and division and conflict and culture, and that was very present in our church. We were, were an increasingly diverse church at that point, and uh, I had preached on race early 2016. Um, David had preached on—I know, actually— I think, yeah, no, me, David and I preached a, a tag team sermon the Sunday after Ahmaud uh, Arbery was murdered. And yeah, that was before George Floyd. Right. And, um, and man, it was, uh, honestly, it was, it, it was crazy. Uh, we had such intense conflict in our church. We took our church through, we basically wrote kind of a systematic theology of race and justice. Intense and conflict took, over what? Over your sermon? Over, over, uh, oh, yes, over the fact that we addressed those issues and what we said as we addressed those issues in terms of uh, just talking about racial justice and trying to be careful to talk about that biblically and at the same time apply scripture specifically to the issues we were addressing. Uh, but also kind of challenging our congregation a bit to to make room and make space for brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly African-American brothers and sisters who are, this is stirring up so much stuff, anger, uh, hurt, all of that. And uh, the pushback we got was not, it wasn't just conflict. It it was, um, I mean, to be honest with you, it kind of sparked a, a, I don't know how else to put it other than um, a bit of a rebellion. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, man. And and it just sparked this process that we're even still dealing with now where people, I'll put it to you this way. We had somebody say in 2020 uh, when uh, uh, President Biden came into office, we had somebody say in one year, I lost my country and I lost my church. Mm. And the country part, I think we understand what they mean. If you're conservative, that was that was hard, you right, know, for right, you. Right. The church part was, well, now we're a church that talks about race, that talks about justice. Um, and um, so there was just there was a lot, man. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of the fallout from that in so many different ways. A lot of churches have wrestled with it. I think we probably did in a more intense way just because we're in you know, the DC area. Um, but let me say this, the the good part is the way we addressed it, biblically, but clearly, although it stirred some stuff, uh, I do think it strengthened our congregation because the people who trusted us enough to stick around still ask tough questions, wrestle on all sides, uh, who stuck around, now we have this church that is so united around this biblical vision that we have as it relates to these issues. And so I can't tell you the number of people who said, 
I was not at McLean Bible Church. Uh, I, I, you know, I was just living here in the area, or I had just, I just moved to the area. But when I saw the way you guys addressed these issues or addressed the conflict that the issues brought up in your church, that made me say, "That's the church I want to be a part of." And so uh, it really, I think overall has has been a really beautiful thing, but it's been a challenging thing too. But I think this is important, Mike, because I, I don't think what people realize is so many times in these kind of uh, combustible moments, right, when you have a specialist just take racial turmoil, people don't understand that when you decide to go the quote-unquote safe route and not say anything and quote-unquote just preach the gospel— and you do it in a context in which there's growing diversity. Mm. You are going to lose people. Yes. Y- you know what I'm saying? I, yeah. Like, I think th- there was a mass exodus. Mm-hmm. Um, because on the other side of the coin, while you experienced, I can't believe you are talking about it. I've lost my church. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. On the other side of the coin is, I can't believe you didn't say anything. Yeah. Or you didn't say enough. Uh, right. Or, yeah. Right. Right. So there's a cost to all of this. Yeah. And what I hear you say is it sounds like in hindsight, yeah, you may have done a few tweaks, but you're you're happy with the course you chose. I heard you use words like biblical and faithful and, and conviction. Am, am I hearing that right? Yeah, absolutely. And one passage that's been helpful for me is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And Paul writes... Uh, I don't know if I'll get the exact quote, but he says uh, something to the effect of admonish the unruly, um, uh, uh, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, uh, but be patient with them all. That's right. And that framework has been so helpful in thinking through these difficult issues. There are some people who need to be admonished. That's right. And so, uh, I mean, there were, so that was some of the challenge. I mean, I think there were white brothers and sisters in our church that needed to be admonished. Um, On the other side, I remember uh, trying to mediate a conflict situation between a black woman in our church and a white woman. And this was around the Trump election. They had just gotten to know each other. The white woman kind of said in their growing relationship that she had voted for Donald Trump and and explained kind of why. And I remember sitting and talking to them because it was an explosive conflict. Uh, and then I remember sitting and talking to them, and I remember the black woman saying, Mike, she trusted me, and but she said, uh, she voted for Donald Trump, and that's all I need to know about her. Mm. And so I remember saying, really? Mm. Like, that's all you need to know about her? Like, mm. you don't need to know anything about what went into that or anything about her context or story or anything? Even if you land on disagreeing, like strongly disagree. That's all you need to know. Mm. So I think there are some people that lovingly need to be admonished, but there's other people that are faint hearted. Mm. Um, and this has been wearing down on them in so many different ways and they need to be encouraged. Right. Um, and uh, and I'll say this, that's one of the areas where I feel like I wish I had done more of specifically for our white brothers and sisters in our church. Um, I we, we needed to speak strongly. We needed to speak clearly. When I look back, I, I wish I had helped some of our white brothers and sisters see there are two legacies when it comes to being white and Christian in America. And that's just to oversimplify it. Mm. But there were there are very clear examples of white brothers and sisters during abolition, during civil rights, who said from a gospel and biblical conviction, 
We are going to stand with those who are being marginalized and oppressed. Uh, and we're going to do it because we're Christians. Right. Um, and I wish I had said more of, listen, you get to choose which legacy you're going to be a part of. That's good. Uh, and so I think there were some that are faint-hearted that need to be encouraged, but I, I think sometimes I admonished the faint-hearted. Um, and then there's others who are weak. You know, they're ignorant in this area or they're not skilled in how to talk about it and they need to be helped. Uh, but God says through Paul, be patient with them all. It's good. Uh, and that that was really difficult for me to do uh, as well. So we've been trying to work out kind of a pastoral theology and pastoral approach specifically around these very important and critical uh, but difficult issues. Last two questions, Mike. So you've been at the church 16 years. Yeah. I'm sure you've gotten offers to go elsewhere. Yeah. Why are you still not just at McLean, but at a context as a black man at McLean? Why do you choose to stay? The benefits package. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, man. Um, uh, Honestly, man, there have been points, and our elders know this, uh, uh, David and Wade, you know, who who I get to lead with. There have been very clear points uh, where not just I, like, wanted to leave. I felt like it's time to leave. Mm. And at each one of those points, there were things, I think, that happened where God was like, your work is not done. Mm. And a lot of that had to do with um, over time, more and more and more, uh, seeing that we do have an increasingly so leadership, senior leadership in our church from elders on down who share uh, the kind of vision I do for the type of church that I not only desire to be a part of, but I think God has called us to be a part of for such a time as this, which makes all the difference in the world. And so there are there are things, there are ways that we are changing, quite frankly, that have nothing to do with me. It's not because you got a black dude in, 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 in senior leadership, which is important, but I'm not the only one that, share, that has these convictions. Mm. And so I, that's the way I would summarize it, man, is I think at so many different points, there have been critical changes, some of which I've been able to help shape and speak into and others of which um, which I I just, it's because we have shared conviction and other leaders are just as bought in as I am. And so um, I think the, the, yeah, we we have uh, a team, man, that is is really committed to, uh, to doing this. And I just can't shake in my mind. I keep, I've been just constantly thinking about Man, what if we could have the kind of church that, uh, you know, when I think about my guys that I grew up with, you know what I mean, here in the D.C. area uh, and folks uh, um, that are probably more, more comfortable for me, where they feel comfortable coming and a bunch of other kinds of people. Like, what if we could have that kind of church? But also here in the D.C. metro area, uh, um, what if we could have really have the kind of church where people who like they work in politics on opposite sides of the aisle but they are generally, genuinely, and not in a kumbaya kind of way, but in a genuinely united way. We have, like, I, I, my, one of my specific dreams is like, what if we had two political folks that they are publicly disagreeing with each other on policy, and uh, but they're in the same church family loving each other. 
Um, but also emerging generations, man. Um, I, I just, I think we have the opportunity to uh, to leave something for them that is just beautiful, that they're craving. Um, and uh, I think ethnic-specific churches offer that in certain ways that are needed. Uh, but I think the multi-ethnic church does as well. So, I, I man, at the the... The best way I can say it is um, I think at different points, God has shown me it's not just you. You are part of a team, increasingly so, that is united around these convictions and you have an opportunity to do something that's going to bring God glory and do a lot of good here in this area. So uh, God just hasn't let me uh, leave yet, man, at those points and has been gracious to encourage me at critical times where I needed encouragement. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's why I'm still here, man. So what I'm hearing you say, and it's something that I often say to minorities in a majority white context is if you're not here out of sense of calling, you won't last. You will not make it. And I hear you saying you are there out of sense of calling. Last question. So 16 years, it's one thing to be somewhere 16 years, especially as a minority, black man, primarily white context. But Mike, I'm interacting with you. You know, we hung out a couple weeks ago. You happen to be in town. Um, you you are not bitter. Uh, you you are not angry black man. Like you're not Jonah, mm, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Um, you're full of joy, full of life, uh, in a diff in a different context. What have you done? to kind of preserve your mental emotional health. Mm. Like yeah. what has what has borne fruit and you know in addition to of course praying time in the word yeah. walking by the spirit like what have you done to make sure that when I walk into McLean Bible I'm bringing the best of who yeah. I am. That's good, man. There's a couple of things I say. One, you mentioned prayer, the word, all that, and that's real. I remember one specific time where I was, uh, I was, I was. My my wife looked at me one day, stopped me in the kitchen, and says, "You are uh, how, what did she say? Um, she says you you are you are controlled by anger right now." Mm-hmm. Um, I was like uh, overwhelmed with anger. Mm. And uh, around this the racial stuff and around things that people were doing and saying in in the church and it's just hard. And Ephesians four, man, I'll never forget going upstairs and and just sitting in God's word and just that passage of scripture, not just where He talks about be angry and and do not sin, but uh, when He talks about let everything you do be done in love mm. and uh, just different passages. The Spirit just helped me so much. Um, so yeah, there's that. I would say mentorship. So uh, I got to give you a shout out, man. Um, I, 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 we didn't know each other. Uh, we had a, a, a mutual connection through uh, the late, great uh, Dr. Johnny Baylor. Uh, yeah. I know who was a yeah. big brother to you and yeah. was my dad's best friend. And, uh, and so Dr. Baylor knew I was at McLean and my first year here, because he has, you know, he's one of those guys in the black church, but has yeah. a lot of experience in a lot of different settings. He's like, you need to talk to... Crawford, the rich son, Brian. Like, mm-hmm. you really need to talk to him. And I called you and reached out to you, and you were gracious. And I mean, this is like 16 years ago, man. And um, so since then, whenever I've needed you, or shoot you a text or call, you've been able to give me some guidance. I think you need that. I think you yeah. need some, because everybody doesn't know or have the experience to navigate these spaces well. 
And so you have to find some mentors who have done it and can give you some wise counsel. Um, I think too, man, I think you need community. One of the things I try to help pastors in multi-ethnic churches see is you have to be willing, and this is going to make some people mad in your church, but uh, uh, racial minorities in your church and particularly in leadership, they they actually need some community with folks that understand what they're going through. That's right. And so I've always had that here in our church. I've, I, and it's not about dividing the body, but it's about being able to have a safe space where folks understand and you don't have to translate real time. I tell people all the time, like, imagine if you're um, if you're trying to care for military families, Who's who's you know they got veterans and their family people with PTSD, they got people who are deployed, and while you're trying to do that, there are people in the room who are pacifists and are saying, well, they shouldn't have gone to war anyway. It's like you gotta you gotta be like, hold on one second, I need to care for these families. I can answer your questions, right. but I just can't do it right now. So um, I, I've needed that space at, at points, man, and and that's just been so helpful. Um, and, uh, and our leadership, man, uh, especially in these last five years has just been a constant encouragement and support. Sometimes, honestly, have lovingly admonished me, Mm. um, uh, times where I disagree with it and times where, uh, I agreed with it all of the times I needed it. And, um, and, uh, so I think those things have really, uh, helped me and it does come back to calling man. You can't do this and be bitter. Yeah. Not just because of the damage you'll do to so many people, but because of damage you'll do to your own soul. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I've had to wrestle my way through to a place of, uh, God, I need you to bear the fruit of the Spirit in me. I need you to keep my heart soft. I need a backbone. I need courage. But I got to be, and this was a very specific conviction from the Lord in a specific period of time where I feel like the Lord was saying to me, Mike, these things I've put on your heart, I've put them on your heart. Mm. These are things in my word. But you are required to be Christ-like at all times. Mm. You never get a pass on being Christ-like if you're mm. a Christian. Mm. And so uh, so I've had to wrestle to a place of having my heart, like transfer my heart from the power of the flesh to the power of the Spirit and walk by the Spirit instead. Uh, so it's, I'm still a work in progress, man. I still have scars and frustrations and all that, but I, I can genuinely say I'm not bitter. Uh, I'm thankful and uh, my eyes are wide open, and and we're still growing and working. Uh, but man, God's grace is sufficient, and He's been really good. Mike, thank you, man. This has been deeply encouraging. Uh, you all have been listening to my interview with uh, Pastor Mike Kelsey, lead pastor at McLean Bible Church. Man, if you and you and Platt play one on one basketball, who's winning, man? It's, why is that a question? I don't even understand why you would do that. Why would you? Why would you do that to Doctor Platt? <laughs> hey, let me say this, man. I didn't know. This is a stereotype. Hey, Platt can ball. I wasn't aware. Uh, but uh, yeah, man. But is it is it that you know sneaky hustle kind of ball? You know what yeah, I'm saying? Is. Okay, but he can get okay. buckets though. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, man, look, I, I appreciate you, Mike. Man, you give me hope for the future. Man, keep. Keep letting the Lord use you in all the amazing ways that you're being used. Uh, You've encouraged me and so many others. You be encouraged. 
Again, thanks for listening. This is uh, Summit Church's Kainos podcast. We are a pastoral podcast focused on ethnic unity within the context of a large, predominantly white Southern church. It's Brian Loritz, your host, and I got to spend some time with my guy, Mike Kelsey. Till next time.